I'm Mark Harrigan. I'm Jana Bajtovic. And this is day three of the isolation pod. Our idea for how to start today relates to something we'd mentioned in a previous episode, which is our morbid curiosity about the fact Slavoj Žižek was already due to publish a book about the pandemic when most of us had only just about got past the stage of realising that a major war crisis was happening. And we were probably quite scornful, it would be fair to say, of this book. While now the book is out, and to my embarrassment, I actually read it on the day it was released, which perhaps speaks volumes about its insubstantiality. Well, I must say I haven't read it yet. I'm not entirely sure I will. Not because I do not want to, but because I still have uh, way too many other things on my to-read pile. And I must say, quite a few of those seem to me more interesting than than Zizek's latest. I have read most of his recent blog posts, but then again, I think it goes together with perhaps being less scornful of the tendency to write a lot at times of crisis. Well, if it helps, the fact you've read most of the blog posts means you've read a big chunk of the book. So leaving that aside, uh, your awareness of the other things you want to read speaks to what I found oddly touching about an element of this book, which was his disposition to offer advice about how to cope with the lockdown advice, which was both earnest, uh, uncharacteristically so, for someone who, for all his talk of commitment, I do think of as someone who at times hides behind a veil of philosophical detachment. You mean armchair philosophizing? I was trying to be much more polite than that. (laughs) And to see him offer advice seemingly in such a generous spirit, I found uh, quite arresting as someone who is interested in the biography of philosophers and theorists and how they relate to their work in as human beings rather than as people who write philosophy and theory. I must say I also find it interesting, in part because, as you know, I've always been annoyed at the tendency of Uh, the cultural production around theory, so writing about theory, interviewing theorists and so on and so forth, editing theorists' work, to ask for this, you know, practical, action-oriented element. And one of my favourite interviews with Foucault, I can't remember where exactly, um, is where Foucault says something along the lines of, you know, I'm not here to give you hope because people kept asking him, well, you know, if if power is really everywhere, if, you know, disciplinary surveillance is really everywhere, what is the opportunity? Is there any opportunity for resistance? And he basically said something along the lines of, you know, I'm not an, you know, agony on, right? (laughs) In the sense of I'm not a therapist. This isn't my job, right? My job is to analyze. There are times for giving advice as well. But uh, perhaps slightly unexpectedly, I have always been among the people who think that there is a way to draw a distinction between analysis and advice. So I do find it curious that Zizek also so fit to to offer offer some. And it's intriguing, I think, because although it's slightly platitudinous to point this out, there is obviously a an ancient philosophical tradition of philosophy as being a matter of what it is to live well, how one might flourish. 
And in its analytical dimensions, it is proudly detached from this almost entirely. And in its continental dimensions, it's detached from this in a much more ambiguous way. And for Zizek, as someone who I guess I'd position as a kind of post-continental thinker, uh, he engages with analytic philosophy, people like Brandom, for instance, at various points in his work. But still, he, you know, he's clearly not a neo-Aristotelian. And to see him so earnestly reflect and flourishing was quite interesting. I guess or perhaps it's reflexive of this late in life practical or, you know, what it is to mean to live well turned that I see a lot of a lot of theorists have. I mean, I think Foucault, for want of a better term, died before he would have had that turn. But you see you see the same turn with Bourdieu who, for instance, through most of his career, insisted that sociology was, in fact, an objective discipline of analysing social reality. And only relatively late, with his analysis of neoliberalism, actually turned towards uh, speaking more openly in the activist key. Same thing we could say recently, relatively recently, happened with Latour, who also went from this relatively detached stance of you know, science is something that we need to think about, to science is something that we need to, in a certain key, I would say, even defend, which which I think a lot of people found surprising, and so on and so forth. So I think not to sound ageist, certainly, and also not to sound too generalizing about it, but I think there is something either about a stage in life or a stage in career, or perhaps about conditions that does propel people who are otherwise not inclined towards giving advice or becoming engaged in matters to to start dispensing with it. Well, we should be careful, though, of imputing these motives to people. I say having already imputed imputed an earnest motive to Zizek in this case. Uh, Bertrand Russell's uh, self-help book, Ah, yes. Uh, the Conquest of Happiness, which I think I read three or four times over the course of my 20s and found genuinely a very helpful, touching book. When I read the biography of Russell, the excellent work by Ray Monk, and discovered that actually he was privately disdainful of this book, if I recall correctly, he wrote the self-help book because he'd run out of money. I was going to say, you do know that Russell hated that book, but clearly, yes, you do know that he hated that book. I do, and incidentally, someone who I'd always admired um, on a number of different levels, when I read those two volumes of biography and discovered that he'd actually systematically hurt everyone he was close to in his life, and was a much more ambiguous figure than the um, the kind of emblem of socialist rationalism that I'd painted him as in my youthful mind. I think that's actually a very common thing. I mean, it's I've always been fascinated by this tendency of people to sanctify thinkers they like. I mean, sanctify or demonize alternatively, in the sense in which it's almost as if there is a tendency to position them on one end of the moral spectrum, right? So there are the good thinkers and then there are bad people like Heidegger. Uh, and so on and so forth. And I, I was recently reading a review in the London Review of Books of um, a couple of books by and of um, on Simone de Beauvoir, including Kate Kirkpatrick's 
uh, recent book that I have also read. And what I found annoying in the review is precisely this engagement with Simone de Beauvoir as someone who's supposed to be a feminist icon. And when we say feminist icon, we obviously mean um, someone who acted consistently in ways that tend to reflect or, um, you know, endorse, uh, represent a good example for uh, the kind of acting we expect to see from a feminist. But I know exactly what you mean, and this is one of the reasons why I found the advice in this book so touching, because he's not offering it as a philosopher. Um, in a manner of speaking, he's offering it partly as someone trained in psychoanalysis, but there was something very human about this. So what was the advice? Yeah, we, we keep, I mean, you keep telling me about it, but I actually realised that I don't know what the advice is to begin with. Well, we'll put a longer extract in the show notes for this episode, but the thrust of the advice was, as he puts it, don't think too much in the long term. Just focus on today, what you will be doing till sleep. He suggests the main task is to structure your life in a stable and meaningful way. So it's not a time to search for some spiritual authenticity, to confront the ultimate abyss of our being. And, you know, this cohered with my own coming to terms with what's happening once I went through a week-long phase of being quite drunk and speculating about whether the world as I knew it could ever return and realising that actually it almost certainly won't. Drunk on ideas, you mean? Obviously. So is there any other bits of advice that he's giving? Well... Is it structuring and taking the day, taking things one day at a time? It sounds very platitudinous when you put it that way. No, I'm I'm curious because I mean the structure the structure argument is something that um, I also published this blog post very shortly after the start of the of the coronavirus pandemic, and I've actually said the same thing, which I think comes in part from from my experience with sort of dealing with relatively extreme situations and with high degrees of social isolation, including on kind of long, uh, long treks and stuff like that, uh, or periods of longer isolation, I think structure is essential. So in that sense, I think scheduling, scheduling is really important. And everyone who's, you know, people who have, um, spend longer periods apart from from society from people and thus from social necessity you know monks um sailors and so on and so forth uh, have always said the same thing and there's been an interesting genre of articles in venues like the guardian where people who've had those jobs give advice about this i wholeheartedly agreed with uh, with everything they've written and i also realized that tiny bit envious because I really wish I were on a boat but nonetheless well moving on I don't I'm quite happy to have much more space than I'd have if I was on a boat uh, but the final thought concerning this was what he says about small rituals formulas quirks and so on because these can help stabilize your daily life uh, I've been reading a lot of psychological theory recently for the first time in a long time and part of that is because I'm trying to slowly go back to my PhD, which was the microsociology of everyday life. 
But I'm very interested in the, the psychic significance of these mundane rituals that in an important sense, they're not fully socialized. There are things that we can do privately that have a social origin, but their meaning is for us. It's not that they're not social, but they're not social in the kind of traditional Viberian sense of social action either. I think that's a very good point. Um, what do you mean like, I don't know, morning coffee or watching Netflix? I mean, what do you what do you mean? What does Zizek mean? Does he does he give any examples? Uh, he talks a lot about films and TV and the kind of immersive pleasures of dark Scandinavian like or Icelandic crime series. His favorites are apparently Trapped or the Valhalla Murders. But I, I guess I'm thinking of <clears throat> rituals and the significance of the things we do in isolation from others and the radical circumscription of the social that lockdown entails. Well, I mean, there's certainly something to, you, you know, that sort of Turner's take on ritual is that rituals are the reinscription of the social. So I think a relatively facile reading would would be that by observing rituals even outside of the social as a space of interaction or as the space of visibility, right? Observing rituals outside of the possibility of participating in rituals with other people is our way of showing that we are still part of the society despite the fact that the elements of physical co-presence that would presumably be part of, of a lot of those rituals are just not there. Oh, well, this is where the former anthropologist meets the person who's always been ever so slightly philosophically cautious about the assumptions anthropologists tend to make about culture. Just to specify, oh, well, okay, I was going to say just to specify, for those who do not know, I am a former anthropologist and you're presumably the other person, but... Um, I think I share the, uh, to a great degree, one of the reasons why I am not only an anthropologist um, or why I left that discipline very early on. I share almost all of the suspicion concerning culture, but I think that there are sometimes ways to say, generalize things about the way that humans, or at least humans socialized in a particular historical period tend to behave uh, that nonetheless do not obfuscate the fine-grained detail uh, of daily life. Well, there's a, there's a broader debate here, which we can get into another time, um, about whether it's fair to say anthropology presupposes a over-socialized conception of culture. But the minimal position I want to take is that we do need to loosen the socialization of culture to open up the space in which we can begin to ask about how do we cope when the social and the cultural are circumscribed under conditions of lockdown? I think that's a very good question. And for instance, reflecting on, on what you've said about Jirik's advice, one of the things that seem obvious to me is that that is advice for people with no caring duties at all. I mean, that advice is, I guess, commonsensical and well-intended for people who are on their own or perhaps, you know, with uh, people they live with and, and other people 
that they do not have to spend a lot of time taking care of. Yeah, and I mean, that's part of why I find it so earnest in a way. I mean, it's quite limited advice and it's very much the perspective of a wealthy 73, 74-year-old man who lives alone and, as he says at one point in the book, his sons won't visit him anymore. Well, that's possibly because they would be a risk to his health. So, but No, no, that, I, I took that as a given. The interpretation didn't occur to me until you said that. But I'm just reflecting on, on a lot of things. I mean, I've, I've obviously you have as well. I think everyone has seen a lot of people <laughs> on social media, including my colleagues of different, different sorts, so fellow academics, uh, reflect on what it means to be basically at home homeschooling your children or taking care of, of younger children. Uh, I think a relevant element of that is also what happens if you have uh, elderly parents or people that you otherwise uh, have to have to exhibit a bit of care for. I'm reflecting on something that uh, has just been published yesterday, as a matter of fact, in Nature, uh, with the title The Pandemic and the Female Academic. And it's an academic who, who reflects on something that I've also been very interested in, which is the impact of the gender division of labor in the household, including care labor, for how different genders experience lockdown. An awkward pause as I contemplate my own privilege. Um, well, I mean, I, I think it's also, you know, it's needlessly stereotypical to say, you know, this is women only because clearly, first of all, you know, there are more than two genders. And second of all, uh, this is also my own privilege in many ways because I have no children. But uh, I have been reflecting and I have no caring duties at the moment in the sense of in kind of the physical environment. But I have been reflecting a lot on what the inability to have full control over your own time means, not only in the sense in which it exacerbates the existing differences in terms of career progression, because, you know, as, as someone, someone said at the very start of the lockdown, you know, I look forward to seeing all the articles that will have been written and published by sort of privileged uh, white male academics whilst their partners are busy tending children, right? So I think there, I think one element is that. Uh, but I also think that another element is that simply, including for people who are very far from, from the academia, this experience basically amplifies everything, including inequalities in their daily lives. So it just makes them more apparent, right? Um, gendered inequalities of care exist outside of lockdown as well. Uh, gendered inequalities in terms of the division of labor, not only in the household, but also around it, exist outside of lockdown as well. So in that sense, lockdown, for me at least, amplifies and perhaps makes it more obvious what is wrong with capitalism in many different ways. Well, in manner of speaking, we could say that it, it pauses the reality of your life. It holds it in place. It casts it in amber. 
and then the the roundabout stops and you are where you are. I mean, when this all began, I happened to be rereading the Spoke Zarathustra and some of Nietzsche's works for the first time in a while. And it occurred to me when I was in the aforementioned phase of despair that his idea of the eternal recurrence or the eternal return is quite an interesting way of looking at the microsociology of lockdown. And so as I understand this notion of Nietzsche's, it's part of his project to map out the contours of a truly affirmative stance towards life, to live fully, um, to be committed to, as he once put it, becoming who you are. And to do that, it's necessary to be willing to repeat. Uh, as he says in a later book, The Gay Science, what if someday or night a demon would steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable, innumerable times more. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and every sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you all in the same succession and sequence. Even this spider and this moonlight between the trees and even this moment and I myself. The eternal hourglass of existence is turned upside down again and again and you with it, speck of dust. And now we're a month into lockdown. I think it's been a month. I think it's almost exactly a month, yeah. That image of the eternal hourglass being turned upside down again and again and our lives being specks of dust within it really does register with me. Yes, I was obviously and um, I guess expectedly reminded of the way in which they satirize a bit the concept of eternal recurrence in True Detective, which is one of the very few, speaking of serious, uh, one of the very few TV shows that I actually do enjoy and perhaps in a meta commentary on eternal recurrence actually did consider watching again or rather re-watching once the lockdown has started and talking about the season one of course not not any other season but um to go back to to your broader point yes i think it's not necessarily the repetition uh, but i think it is amplification because it is basically to kind of uh, draw a bit on on stiegler it is basically kind of introducing the poison without the cure. Because I think, you know, the poison, so to speak, of people's uh, daily lives in capitalism, and by which I mean relatively privileged people, is this idea of, you know, work that's largely pointless, um, caring duties that are unequally divided, um, the assumption for, at least for academics, that... We are there only to produce knowledge that we have no ownership or control of. And what we're seeing today, or what we're seeing in this period, I think, is to a great degree, in part, via online um, pivot, to use the hated expression, is the amplification of all of that. This is literally, you are a brain in a bat, Right, you are a face at the end of a Zoom connection, and very likely your employer doesn't care about anything else that you do. Right, you are only a provider of um, socially necessary labor or of 
social reproductive labor, especially if you do fall within a certain sort of standard of gender. And uh, Pierre Paolo Donati has written about this kind of function in terms of the virtualization of relationality and how relations that cannot be confirmed and entrenched by at least some face-to-face interaction change in their character as a consequence of this. And my experience thus far has been that it does strange things, both to your experience of your residual remaining face-to-face relationships in lockdown. They become more real, they become more present, they become more significant. But also, do the other relationships drop out on some ontological level in spite of the continued ethical importance they have to you? That's interesting. My experience has been, in in fact, very different. But I think it may have to do with our different experiences of existing in physical space and mobility, because I'm someone who moved a lot and has been, basically, I think that... (laughs) In fact, since the start of the lockdown is almost certainly the period, the longest period I have ever spent in one place. And whereas in some cases or in some periods of of life, this included short, sometimes day-long trips to um, outside of of my main place of residence, uh, throughout a decent portion of my life, this meant that I wouldn't be living in any single place for longer than sometimes a month, sometimes three months, um, and so on and so forth. So I think for me, a lot of relationships have always been mediated digitally. And that just went without saying. So in that sense, I must say I haven't experienced anything along those lines, but I think it might really have to do with the idea of the necessity of compresence. Well, I mean, there's a risk of getting too introspective here, but I mean, another element is the extent to which the psychodynamics of relationships feel more obvious to me when they're virtualized. But, you know, your point about our contrasting experiences is a really important one. I think that cuts through this whole episode uh, about how differently this is experienced, not just depending on your current conditions, because we have similar current conditions, but also the route you've taken into those conditions in the first place. Do we have a theoretical framework for thinking about how different lockdown is for people, how different this crisis is experienced as? From the media standpoint, I've been thinking about the often uh, disputed concept of filter bubbles, but I think it still has a certain utility to make sense of this. I think that might be a, a relatively potentially, well, a framework worth exploring. Uh, I think the other is obviously, you know, worldview, so, uh, or even life world, not not that I am otherwise a fan of that concept, but that is whether one is in a possession of, uh, or has access to a worldview that can accommodate what's going on. And I think we've we've discussed this before, and I've obviously tweeted about this repeatedly, but one of the, you know, going jokes about uh, people like me who come from former Yugoslavia, so who have experienced um, state collapse and and breakdown, was that, you know, for us, we we kind of turn to people who are shocked and ask them whether they're shocked because they're experiencing this for the first time. And I think there is definitely something to be said about having had a a previous experience that's scalable towards going on. 
But I think there's obviously also to, something to be said about the inevitable epistemological limits of this perspective, which is saying, well, if you already think that what you're seeing is the eternal recurrence of something that might very much limit how you're able to perceive the situation. I mean, we've debated this in the past, not in these episodes, uh, but the assumptions we make about continuity or its absence and to what extent they can be explained in terms of ontological security, if formatively you experience the world as reliable and routine, that inevitably shapes the expectations you have of the future. And part of the change that I've had to go through in my own mind is recognising that the axiom that things will tend towards continuity is basically unsupportable. Well, I think it also depends on where you perceive continuity or not. But I think this is... I'm not always a fan of uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, but I think one of the good points that he makes in his initial work on black swans and predicting the unpredictable is precisely about how the experience of violent conflict, so disruption, so ontological insecurity, shapes one's capacity to conceive of worlds that are radically discontinuous with the worlds they are used to. Which makes me want to go back and read that. Ah, well, uh, maybe that's something we could discuss in one of the next future episodes. That sounds like a very good idea.